Welcome to episode 38 of Inking Out Loud. Today, we're continuing with our discussion of Robert Jordan's The Fires of Heaven for Part 2, where we're picking up where we left off last week and carrying on through the end of Chapter 41, The Craft of Kin Tovir. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos. I'm joined again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And we're joined again by our sound engineer and recurring special guest, Patrick McCaffrey. What's up, Pat? A gracious good morning to you. It's splendid. <laughs> Top yes. of the morning to you. Before we go any further, I just want to say that it wasn't until like an hour before we went live here. I was, I was having a few technical difficulties. And um, I just managed to get my PC working. I just managed to get everything ready in time for the episode. But my notes are all over the place here. I have half on my PC, half on my phone. So uh, this is going to be very, very fun for me to kind of just wing it here through the majority of this episode. <laughs> So, no worries. Um, wheel weaves. Yes, wheel. it does. And uh, again, before we jump into it, I just want to say um, we have a little bit of a time constraint today, so we will not be covering the um, the lore and listener questions portions that we mm. normally do. So if that's why you're here, I apologize. Uh, you can you can just turn off our podcast now. <laughs> and go do whatever. With the length of the uh, recent episodes we've had, I think we're allowed to, to you know make a, a slightly shorter one today. Yeah, no joke. Do <laughs> something productive with your lives instead of enjoying our podcast. Yes, exactly. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it off to Drew right now so that we can get a really quick recap of what we've read for this week. What's up, Drew? Uh, yeah, so in this segment, we had a lot of uh, setup for what is going to be a phenomenal climax to this book. But that does not mean that it wasn't an exciting read. Uh, in this portion, we have Rand and the Aiel crossing the Dragon Wall. They're attacked by Shadow Spawn uh, on the way. Rand loses his virginity. Uh, they find some atrocities uh, committed by Kuladin and the rest of the Shido. Uh, and they are getting set up for what promises to be an epic showdown with the Shido around Kyrian. Uh, meanwhile, the Wonder Girls have joined up with the traveling circus with uh, Val and Luca's menagerie and uh, discovered um, a refugee Shanchan, a Sreddit handler, is part of that. Uh, they have gotten to a town called Samara, which is where good old Masima has posted up with the rest of the Shianarans and uh, is causing trouble and the town is at the boiling point. Um... Yeah, Uno shows up at one of their shows and uh, recognizes, or Nynaeve recognizes him, and uh, and we get a little fun dialogue there. I, I think a lot of people will agree that Uno and Nynaeve talking, like, that's, like, two of the most diametrically opposed speakers in the Wheel of Time. <laughs> so we get some fun stuff there. Um, but yeah, uh, the other really important thing, however, is that Mogedian encountered Nynaeve in the World of Dreams, was busy whooping Nynaeve's butt. Brigida showed up and saved her at the uh, um, sacrifice of herself. Mogedian rips her out of Teleron Riyadh, and she is dying in the real world until Elaine bonds her as her warder. And uh, that's, that's more or less where we left off with uh, our two major storylines here, so... Yeah. I, I want to pass it off to Pat here, though, uh, to kick off style discussion. Yeah, so uh, this honestly could fit into uh, any, any any of the episodes from The Shadow Rising up to about where we are around here. Hmm. Um, one of the my favorite parts about reading The Wheel of Time is uh, the cultures that Jordan throws in at us. And a lot of the times we have mixed cultures you know from that that all have real backgrounds in our world but are sort of like to come together mm -hmm. the aiel are like a great example of this because yeah. the more like you almost can't dig into or see too much into the aiel <laughs> because they're they're just kind of all over the map you know right yeah they are yeah a lot of people will say they're one thing but you know they're really several yeah i mean there, there are three immediate aspects to the aiel that at least pop out to me uh, their physical description is very much like uh, Scandinavian-blooded Irish, you know, like, yeah. as we see traditional Irish day. Pale skin, red hair, 
light eyes. Uh, but culturally speaking, they draw a lot from uh, like Native American, especially Navajo yes. uh, cultures, with really? how they, with how their their infrastructure as a society is built around you know these like cities built into you know canyon walls and things like that, mm-hmm. and uh, and how they uh, cultivate crops in terraced, yes. you know, uh, irrigated. <clears throat> areas in their cities and and their dependence on things like corn um weaponry too and weaponry as well aesthetic things that but i think uh in the origins of the culture is probably the most interesting Mm. aspect to me and that is they there's a lot of inspiration drawn from uh the tribes of israel oh yes where they they they're a people uh bereft of their homeland uh, they are separated into tribes, obviously, you know, there, there's the, the covenant. It's like, it's, it's not even disguised. It's like they yeah. have a covenant that they break <laughs> and then they get exiled to the desert. It's right. Like, yeah. It's like, that's pretty on the nose. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, I think the Aiel are the most easily accessed and emblematic example of how Robert Jordan built his cultures and his mm. societies in the series where uh, and, and, you know, this is something that's going to play into uh, the TV show a lot. And I think the writers and, and the, those in charge of casting are cognizant of this. It's going to be impossible to properly cast actors today who are going to look exactly like characters. Because that. so many of these cultures were physically described as crazy amalgamations of different ethnic groups in the real world. You know, some of them are a little more homogenous, like the Seafolk, but you get you get characters like um, uh, Saldean characters, uh, like Fayil, who is darker skinned, has the epicanthic fold, has you know the uh, recognized yeah, Asian yeah, kind of Asian eyes, sort of inspired, yeah. Mm. But at the same time, Shirium is also Saldean, and she is as ginger as you get. But she also has the tilted the eyes, the fold, yeah, the yeah, tilted the, eyes, yeah, so, the high cheekbones, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's going to be really interesting to see as the casting progresses in the show how uh, how they go about making those decisions. It's great fuel for the imagination, but something that's hard to bring into literal reality. Yeah, and and this is also a conversation I'm sure we'll have when we get to Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive because oh, yeah. the, the ethnicities in that are are all over the board you know <laughs> yeah that's and who knows uh, when we'll get to the stormlight archive we have so much to do in the meantime i was just listening to our skyward episode very recently and i laughed drew when i heard uh we we, we mentioned very briefly something about hero of ages and mistborn and you went yeah and that's that's, that's a couple months down the line and i just oh I yeah just at the laughing. time <laughs> at the time the lost metal was still like possibly gonna come out around now yeah we're at the this is september 29th today yeah course that didn't happen this is an episode uh, that we recorded at 20 30 weeks ago at least 30 weeks ago yeah <laughs> and we're still it's months perhaps years off but you know something to keep in mind oh, oh definitely years off at this point because he has yeah. to finish writing uh rhythm of war but anyway yes. back to the wheel of time mm-hmm. uh, rob do you have any style uh uh points to I, I didn't uh well it depends if you consider this style or not there is something that i noticed uh very starkly in this part Something that I, I found a lot of authors do, but this is specifically uh, talking about dialogue and delivery and how action interrupts dialogue on occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sure. something, like I said, I I think, as far as I know, every author I've read enough of has done this. But it's always struck me as kind of unrealistic. And maybe I haven't been paying attention enough in the Wheel of Time to point it out until now. Perhaps it was just because I was given such a stark example. But here, this is the example I'm talking about. Okay. Um... There's a scene, okay, so when, when Mogedian interrupts Nynaeve, all right, uh-huh. in, uh, for the second time when she has her throwdown with Nynaeve in, in Teleron Riyad, first there is the, uh, the scene where Brigitte kind of arrives and takes her to the meeting where she can spy on the other Forsaken. Right. And, of course, they leave afterwards, and they start, uh, they start discussing the, the, the aspects of the, of the different Forsaken and their personalities. Brigitte at one point says... Uh, she describes Grendel as being devious. And then at that point, Mogedian's voice just kind of comes from behind them and says, she chooses that moment to speak and she says, Grendel is devious, 
but not devious enough. At which point, Brigitte turns and fires the arrow. But that's uh-huh. this is not really how human reaction time works. The quote is, Grandal is devious, Mulgedian's voice said, but not devious enough. And then Brigitte turns and fires the arrow. How does she? That's how does she have the time to to, ha, to literally deliver an entire sentence before our like either of our characters actually respond and start fighting back? So as to that, uh, and and this is my perspective as a writer. Um, you can approach this a couple of different ways. Uh, because this is something we are reading. It is by nature a sequential experience. You have to read one sentence and then the next sentence, and you know, um, it, you you can't like intersperse words, you know, to like make yes. it clear that like you know. At, um, but so there are a couple of different ways you can do this. Um, one is how Robert Jordan did it in this particular instance. Another possibility would be you have uh, Grand is devious. Mogedian's voice said from behind them. Brigida spun. And then the fight. But not devious enough. And yeah. then Brigida, you know, like, releases the arrow. You could do something like that. Or even... Grandal is devious, but not devious enough, Magedian's voice said. And then the next line is, Brigida spun, and in one motion released yeah. an arrow as Magedian spoke, or I guess something like that. I'm reading it but, too literally in some ways, because I'm just like, this doesn't yeah. seem fe- like feasible to me. Right, but this is something I see a lot of authors doing, and every author, as far mm-hmm. as I know, has at least one moment where somebody interrupts somebody else speaking, and it's like, oh, we have to react to this, but somehow they manage to get an entire sentence out before anybody seems to do anything. Yeah, uh, I I really think it is a stylistic thing, and I'm glad you brought it up here, uh, because you will notice reading through the Wheel of Time, especially now that you like have this on your mind. There are times where Robert Jordan utilizes those other kind of methods that I explained there. And I think it's just a, a, an authorial choice to include some variety. So you don't always have the same structure of a scene in the actual writing of it, you know? Because that can get boring. If the mm. same... If you read the same type of sentences over and over and over again, you're like, okay, this author is using a crutch. This right, author is yeah. predictable. This is getting boring. <laughs> uh, but when they can mix it up in a few different ways, then it becomes more dynamic and more interesting. So Yeah, and I guess um, the only other point that I have written down that might resemble something like a style discussion, uh, really quick, I just want to point out that I, I, I'm thinking, I'm picking up on points now where uh, Robert Jordan's becoming self-aware. Or at least where he's uh. becoming aware of the theories at this point that we're starting to surround the Wheel of Time. Because there was a moment mm. with Alviarin when she's talking to Pod and Fane. And um, I'm pretty sure Jordan was aware that she's... Of course, Alviarin is going to be a prime suspect at this point for our hidden... Uh, for Like, a hidden Forsaken somewhere in the White Tower. But then she slips up to Fane. She asks Pod and Fane, did one of the f- the Chosen send you? And she, she, mm-hmm. she almost continues with the word forsaken. She was very clearly about to say forsaken, but she yeah. stops and she she stops and she correct corrects herself and she uses the word chosen instead. But I thought that was a pretty deft way, narratively speaking, for for Jordan to kind of throw that theory a little bit yeah, less eliminate credence. her as a suspect. Yeah. Which in turn just makes the and reader ask the question, well, if it's not her, then who the heck is it? Yeah. Well, and it and it pulls double duty because it helps reinforce the uh the arrogance of the Black Aja, which we also see in mm. Fires of Heaven with <laughs> uh, Leandrin and Magedian, uh, where where oh, there is a that's dark, yeah, a lack of respect on the part of the Black Aja for the Forsaken, to the point where they don't even really want to call them the Chosen, because the the Black Aja have been the Chosen, so to speak the most important of the Dark Friends, you know, like, the most useful and, and powerful of the Dark Friends for so long because the Forsaken were sealed away. And yeah. now they're back, and the Black Aja, who are these arrogant, power-hungry eyes to die by nature, now have to deal with the fact that they're way lower on the totem pole. It's a good juxtaposition to um, the good Aes Sedai and their reaction to Rand. 
Yeah. Because they're both having to make, <laughs> yeah. They're both having to make the same realization. Like, oh, hey, I don't run the show anymore. And they, you know, there's different consequences for their uh, lack of dealing with that in a productive manner. Right, yeah. And, and actually, this is, again, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't even consider it until now, but this is the segment of the book where Moiraine is actively humbling herself to work with Rand. Yeah. And that is a great contrast to how the Black Aja act in relation to the Forsaken. I hadn't considered that. That's a good point. The juxtaposition yeah. there really lends a lot of weight to both sides. Holy crap. Yeah. 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 So, no, it's super. It's super cool. So that's everything yeah. I have to talk discussion-wise. Should we get into our characters now? I'd like to talk about Asmodian because we didn't mention him at all last time. I guess I we did very briefly, but yeah. 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 Um, just that. I, I'm not sure that I've read anything else that kind of has this dynamic uh, between our, you know, our chosen hero subjugating uh, a member of the darkness. It's like, it's like Aragorn enslaving a Nazgul and having him teach him how to sword fight. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. It's, like, it's really cool. And, like, Asmodian is an interesting character. He's one of the more dynamic of the Forsaken. Uh, and we get to see um, parts in this section and others where he's he's actually working for Rand. So I'm... He does things, he goes out of his way to... Not give himself away, not give Rand away. Uh, I'm like curious with the farce knows. to get your uh, your impressions. What do you guys think about Asmodian as a character in the Wheel of Time? Like as a person like or how he's you written? Dislike him? Like uh, both? I pity him. You pity him? I pity. Him. Maybe maybe pity's too strong of a word. I'm sympathetic. Well, no. Like here's the mm, thing. Okay. Here's the thing. We learned some things about <laughs> Asmodian from the other Forsaken. I I I think it was Ravin that we heard it from, but it might have been Lanfear actually telling Rand this at the end of the last book. But we learned that Asmodian severed his mother, or at least... It was called severing back then in the Age of yep. Legends, I think. Yep. Yep. Severed his mother and let her be dragged away by a murderer, Screaming. Mm -hmm. That's tough to hear. However, A, that was thousands and thousands of years ago. Of course, maybe not so long from Asmodian's point of view, now that I consider it, considering he was... Locked up. It was like it was Tuesday for Asmodian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but it's just it's it's hard not. I mean, he is like the definition of somebody caught between a rock and a hard place. His his story about when when Ren asks him why he's helping him, why like like what his what his hopes are, like why he's tr even trying to help Ren, why he hasn't just given up yet. And Asmodian says, yeah. you know, gave his little anecdote about the man who was falling off of the cliff who knew he was going to fall to his death and knew that that little tuft of grass was not going to save him. But in that desperate moment, he grabbed it anyway. That was a really cool, I guess, way to kind of explain Asmodian's character. But it's just... It's hard not to pity somebody caught between Rand and the Forsaken. Like, damn. I I have no pity for Asmodian. He, yeah, pity was too strong of a word. No, he's entirely responsible for the situation he he ended up in. Oh, oh, quite. Like, oh I, yeah, I, I have I have no sympathy. I mean, for that Lanfear... guy. And This is where like <sighs> I wanted to kind of bring this up with you guys because I'm baffled by the the love that Asmodian gets. I think in it's the Wheel just because fandom. he's so pathetic and humbled in this book. It's just like no, 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 people people are like, oh, I I like wish we could have gotten more of him. I wish we could have you like, know seen him fight with Rand. I'm like, he wouldn't have fought with Rand. The guy was a coward through and through. Well, he couldn't have fought with Rand. the only thing he thought could preserve himself. He was eminently selfish. He was utterly pathetic. Like He could not have fought with Rand. That would be like a, a kitten trying to <clears throat> fight with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. That would It wouldn't work. There's no fighting involved Well, well no, like, th these people are saying, like, oh, Rand could have unraveled his shield and let himself let him become like a new leader for the black tower or something i've literally seen that theory online you think people are just really craving that kind of anti-hero i don't know I, I i'm baffled by it that's I what think, i'm saying i think people like a redemption story yeah and asmodian seemed like he could be a redemption he was story. fertile so ground upon which to sow some oh. narrative seeds for a redemption arc i think oh. no no uh maybe maybe uh, i think there's points on both sides like he's a he's a bastard yeah. Let's oh, yeah. Not, let's He's not get around person. the bush about yeah. that. However, <laughs> his his fundamental problem 
uh, is pride. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, that wasn't going away, and and that is like yes, he may have helped Rand, but he did not help Rand out of any sense of serving the good. It was oh, no. I'm helping oh, Rand no. because because I have nothing else to yeah. do. I can't. I'm yeah, helping I, myself. Yeah, no, I'm not like, making I that argument. I have no at all. sympathy for that guy because of that. Like he 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 is an utterly evil person, an utterly selfish person, and the only reason <clears throat> he is, uh, or the only reasons he's helping the light are. Incidentally. We also have to consider okay. just how much that Jordan chose to humanize Asmodian as compared to the other Forsaken. Like, we find well, out why he went to the Shadow. It was not for immortality or power, ostensibly. According to him, he could have been lying. He is a Forsaken. But he, for him, it was music, and he just wanted to spend endless ages composing. And even take what I, like what Asandra says to Hadnan Kadir about her visits to Natale. Like, she just, for some reason, all he wants to do is, is make love and play strange music that I've never heard before. Like, these are these are human looks at a Forsaken that we don't get with any other of their number for the rest of the series. I mean, if I'm going to be fair, if I was trapped in the Aeol Waste in a caravan with Asendra, I would do the exact same things that Asmodian did. But <laughs> that doesn't make him any better like no but it, the it, contrast between him and the other forsaken is good to look into because his kind of evil is what i would call more garden variety than the other forsaken like yeah. moradin for instance yeah <laughs> he's not as he's not profound in his in his evil he's selfish in his evil hmm. and there's a big difference there like or it makes you orders of magnitude more dangerous, yeah. More corrupt, yeah. I haven't really um, to be like on Moradin's level or uh, Semerog's level, um, possibly Lanfear, Demandred are up there. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you could well, have Demandred and Samael have <clears throat> similar. Uh, they they are acting out of envy, yeah, and jealousy, envy and hate, and jealousy. Yeah. Well, more envy in Samael's case, jealousy in Demandred's case. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, which I think makes Demandred more dangerous than Samael. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, yeah, definitely. I, I think it also might be a large... Like, I haven't personally witnessed a lot of this pity or this, you know, championing of Asmodian on the online parts. But then again, I don't spend a whole lot of time in, like, the Wheel of Time communities. For myself, I'm, I'm more in the Brandon Sanderson communities where I spend my time... But yeah. I think it might be unconscious, you know, on a large part for the, the fandom because... Part of what I find so... Actually, I would say the main thing I find so interesting about Asmodian as a character is not anything that, that he does on his own, but it's with the chemistry and the interactions with Randall Thor. Yeah. And, and like, <clears throat> the, like how like what he manages to bring out of Randall Thor yeah. when he's playing this music, when he's... When Rand... You know, they, they start discussing the Forsaken, and we get these memories from Luz Theron kind of floating up to the surface, and Rand is unconsciously responding to these things with, with knowledge that he doesn't even know he knows. Like, the, the things that Asmodian brings out of Randall Thor are more interesting than anything that we see coming yeah. out of Asmodian. It so. brings a good amount of flavor yeah. to this book. And honestly, that's what I miss hmm. uh, later on. Um, it's like, okay, that was a good section of the book. It had a lot of interesting things going on there. And it just it's never repeated. Not that it should have been. I wish it was extended a little bit because I like things that I like. Yeah. But... <laughs> We have to contend with the book the way it's written, and it's also know, for better or for worse, that's the situation. Kind of cool to see others in Rand's vicinity kind of reacting to things that come out of his yeah. mouth that Rand realizes yeah. is, uh-oh, a slip-up, leaves everybody else confused, but then there's Jason Natal who kind of, bing, like, kind of oh, has like, like get, he plucks I the wrong chord. <laughs> yeah, he gets that yeah. reference, and then you're it's just like, realizing, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that was a joke that only Natal understood, <laughs> you know? Yeah that Asmodian was there for. So, I don't know. Like, the, these glimpses that we get of Asmodian, he does a lot more, or at least he does. A, he has a unique role amongst the Forsaken in this book. I Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think he's a, a well-written character, and I think he gives us a really uh, fun way to engage with the text and with the characters around him. Uh, but I just don't understand why people seem to love him. Oh, yeah, love him is way too much. Yeah, like, I, like I said before, <laughs> even pity... Was was too strong of a word. I just I, I'm kind yeah. of sympathetic for his current situation, but of course mm. I would never argue that he doesn't deserve it. 
Well, some right, people yeah. love spiders, and if that just doesn't tell you all you need to know about the human speaking race of and spiders, what we choose to like. <laughs> uh, speaking of spiders, apparently yeah. uh, there was a, a a new like research project that just published their findings. Uh, a, spiders can fly, and B, they manipulate the Earth's uh, magnetic field to do so. I thought you were literally about to make a Mogedian reference. I just gave Pat nightmares for like the next six months. Yes. So spiders can fly, <laughs> and they and interact they... with the magnetic field of the Earth. Correct. To, Correct. Do, to wow. do so. Um, yeah. Okay. That that I have so many well... questions. <laughs> I'm, like... You're gonna have to explain that one to me afterwards because I'm trying to 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 make something of those two pieces, and I can't see how they fit. Well, like the Chinese zookeeper said to the last male panda on Earth, fuck that. I'm okay with spiders. Spiders are okay with, I, as long as I no, know where they are. No, if I look back no, and it's gone, Pat, then I start Pat to get a little nervous. Pat is, like, nervous. clinically arachnophobic. No so. kidding. I despise them. Oh, you, it's a good thing you don't work at Delta and 70 speaking, then, yeah. my friend. And speaking <laughs> of spiders, shop? this is a good Mogedian segue. Yeah, I uh, think segue. this is a great Mogedian segue. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, That's what I thought you were not, doing, dude. <laughs> Someone who's not when you start talking about flying spiders and magnetic fields, I was like, hang on. <laughs> um, I, I love Magedian in this book, like, as a villain. Um, oh, as a villain, okay. She, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll get into her more later on. Uh, I think she is a, a broken person after the events of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not quite the same. She's more like, oh, you tried. But, uh, but in this book especially, she is very threatening. She oh, comes yeah, off yeah. as very dangerous, uh, and this is when we get to see her in her full element in Teleronriot, right? Where she's doing stuff that we've never seen. Yeah, the, no the wise one ones match. weren't doing it. Lanfear wasn't doing it. Egwene can't do it. You know, like th- there, are, there are some crazy things she does here, and I think the most. Uh, uh, the scariest of them is her tearing Brigida out of like. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how she managed to do that, or how the mechanics of that works. I'm, I, I'm, I'm completely at sea here. Yeah, uh, I, I don't have a great answer here. Uh, this might be something uh, maybe I'll bring up uh, with Matt Hatch the next time I'm on the Dusty Wheel, since since it seems to be my theme there is we get into like metaphysics. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but. It, it really is uh, a confounding thing that she does. Uh, it it breaks a lot of the rules, or at least sidesteps a lot of the rules that we know of, like how the world works. Do you think the true power could have been involved this early on? Um, nah. I do not think the true power was involved. Uh, a, I think Magedian is way too much of a coward to use it. Uh, I don't think the Dark One would give it to her. That's, anyway. a, that's what well, I'm wondering. Well, the, the like, Chosen... So this, the was, this is specifically... This is specifically addressed. The Chosen were those who were granted access to the true power. Okay, that was why what they were chosen? set them apart as Chosen. Is that part of the, the moniker, yeah, the Chosen? Like, like there's a, later in the series... I don't remember which of the Forsaken says it, but there, like, there were only 27 people ever granted the right. Oh, wow. I don't remember that one. Um, and they were they were the chosen in the Age of Legends, and yeah, uh, but but I, I I would be surprised if Magedian ever used it. Even even she uses it in the Memory like, of Light. Well, at this point, I'm talking. about. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, like I'm talking about like back in the Age of. Legends. Oh, ever used um, it? You used the past tense, didn't you? I didn't pick yeah. up on that. Okay. Um. It, like even when even like Robin and Samael and Demandred are are freaked out by the idea of it, because what the true power does, like it is inherently destructive. We see what happened to Ishamael, uh, who used it liberally. <laughs> He's got like fire for his eyes, and his skin is like charred, and yeah. like he thinks you know, he is and, the and dark so, one. It's like you have to like oh. Yeah, so A, it drives you insane, and B, it destroys your body, and you will die. Like, period. You will die using the true power. And and so, while the Dark One has promised all the Forsaken immortality, he has not actually granted them immortality yet. So they're all scared as hell to use the true power, Mm -hmm. other than Ishamael, because all he wants is Oblivion. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But... 
but they're it's all like scared to use it because they know they don't have. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, I made that joke. <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, I think this very much was just a manipulation cool. of Teleron Riyad, but this was an extremely advanced manipulation of Teleron Riyad. This is something that required creativity on Magedian's part mm -hmm. and the utter confidence that she could do it. I I don't know, like even if she told somebody else how to do it. I don't know if they could pull it off, because things in Teleron Riyadh, of course, require confidence and strength of will. Yeah. Right, and we're we're told uh, often enough that Mogedian is the best yes. at um, the world Un of dreams. Until See, that's, Slayer, that's yeah. one of the two right. questions I have for you at the end of the uh, episode, Drew. Or just not, they're not questions for you, they're just like, what if scenarios? Like, how do we think that A would have turned out or B would have turned out? But I guess we can bring this up okay. here. Okay, yeah. Mulgadian and Lanfear each have respective claims that they are the true hmm. masters of Teleron Riyadh. So... Even above uh, one another. So who do you think has that claim? If they Mugedian. were to duke it out. Mugedian. You think um, Mulgadian? Lanfear, uh, I, I think it is largely driven by Lanfear's pride. And okay. I also think she <clears throat> would depend... Too much on her strength in the one power. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's her crutch. Yeah. The the real ace in the hole for my uh, belief there is that uh, we get reference a couple of times in the series to like other of the Forsaken saying like Lanfear always claimed the world of dreams as her domain, but Mogedian was better. Mogedian was truly yeah. the best. And when even the other Forsaken are admitting that, like, mm. yeah, okay. And Lanfear's I, not for, basing her the other claim. Lanfear's so. not basing her claim on anything really because they've never she, duped yeah, it out yeah, in the and, world of and dreams. And keep in mind, before. this is all this is all <clears throat> Lanfear. Like, this is her propaganda machine. She's remember the only Forsaken who named right. herself, and she named herself Daughter of Night. Like, you know, she wants to claim Teleron Riyadh as her domain, but this is not based on any like. Comp, you know, competition or contest or whatever. Uh, it's uh, it's just land fear being arrogant. Mm -hmm. Toads, toads, goats. I'm just I'm just now realizing that this was actually supposed to be a short episode. That's right. Here we now that we've spent 20, 25 minutes on Asmodian and Mogedian, should we talk about our main characters? Anything else we want to get out of the way about the Forsaken? No, not at this juncture. Cool. You cool if I more, move on to more Rand on Thor? That, more, more on that next time. Yeah, let's go to Rand. And I want to talk about Rand and Avienda kind of in conjunction with each other. Okay, Because cool. I think they're pretty inextricably linked during this segment of the book. Yeah. Everything Rand does and everything Avienda does is connected. Um, it, you know, we talked about uh, in The Shadow Rising and a little bit at the beginning of Fires of Heaven about, like, their kind of weird relationship and how they awkwardly flirt with each other in this strange way. Uh, I think that is exacerbated greatly in these segments. Once Avienda is forced to sleep in the same room as Rand. Mm -hmm. um, but I think despite the contrived nature of their relationship, you know, there was clear authorial, like there was a heavy hand of Robert Jordan there being like, I want these two characters to end up in this situation Therefore, I will construct this situation for them. It wasn't like a natural thing. Yeah, neither of them would ever have agreed to it if it were but up to that. Despite that, I still think it flows well. It doesn't feel ham-fisted to me. It feels like something that makes sense in a contrived way. We do have the wise ones give right, us the right. whole spiel, like their motivations... Yeah, which he, do make sense. Robert Jordan hedges his bets with like secondary points of view yeah. around them to point out or almost break the fourth wall in a way like whatever complaints a reader might have had about how this dynamic was constructed. Mm. Well, other characters in it are addressing those. Yeah. No. And I I'm going to go ahead and say like I love I love the far snows. I love that whole sequence. I, yeah. I think uh, it was expertly written. I think it was a really powerful moment for both of the characters. Tastefully done. I would Ta say. Definitely tastefully done. Kind of amusingly so, because <laughs> of the, like, 
like several hours yeah, several later. hours later <laughs> yeah <laughs> like oh wow and and the first time i read that i was like, like okay he's yeah, supposed to be like cool. 19 or 20 years old at this point right he's like, 20 uh but like uh several it, the first time later. i read that i was like you know a a 12 year old i was like oh all right and then i read you know as i reread it <laughs> later in my life i was like Whoa, 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 whoa. bullshit. And then as I reread it more, I was like, oh, no. They just they just had, like, round two. <laughs> round two? <laughs> round three, and then two. round four, and then round two. five? He's 19, yeah. dude. Two. Hey, I don't know how long... How old is Avian? Yeah, what kind of downtime Rand has? Is there? she older like, than he is? Uh, I get no, the she's sense younger. that she is she's younger. She's slightly okay. younger. I get the sense uh, that she's she's older, older than, than Egwin, but younger than Rand. Okay. Like, if I remember right, at the beginning of the series, so like, Egwene is 16, Rand is 19, Avienda is 18. Okay. So Avienda is like a year or two older than Elaine as well. I think Elaine's like 17 at this point. Yeah. Cool. To answer the unuttered question, it's like, there's a weave for that. Just for the sake of decency. <laughs> oh, my Jordan God. Decided oh, man. <laughs> uh, to, to keep that I'm so glad I have page, that in my head now. Which was nice. Oh, you know, let's keep this PG-13. But, but, you know, all, all that aside... Uh, the circumstances are crazy around it, right? Like it it shows yeah. Avienda's yeah, mindset and and her character that the moment Rand saw her naked, she was so panicked she literally invented a weave, as far as she's concerned, <laughs> to get away from him. <laughs> like, yeah, and and yet in um in the moment it it's like it's this final acceptance of herself and how she feels because so much of how she's acted through the last book and a half has been like through the lens of her relationship to Elaine she's denying herself Avienda is saying no I I can't like him he's Elaine's and she's using that as an excuse she's saying I can't like you because you're Elaine's like it does that make sense? A yeah. flimsy excuse in my book, coming from oh, but, a culture but who it, has this sister is a, wives. This is a teenage girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. They're, they're, like, anybody at this age, like, I don't care who you are, there's going to be some irrationality. Oh, yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. So I liked how this scene uh, really honed in on the core mm. um desires and fears of Avienda. Okay. It's like, from Rain's point of view, like, oh, hey, Avienda, it's nice to finally meet you. We get to meet her whenever she's not around Rand. Right, But this yeah. is the first time she's actually being herself. And she becomes so much Rand. more relaxed after this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but, well. Yeah. Well, in certain ways. In certain ways. Yeah. But, as, as far as the relationship between Rand and Avienda, how it's progressing at this point, you know, the far snows, this chapter, this this entire sequence, um, I do want to say with keeping up with a, with a theme from the past couple of episodes, first with Perrin and debatedly with Matt, I do want to say to Rand, congrats, dude. Here's a, you know, fist bump for you. Oh, you yeah. You finally uh, did it. Hey. Uh, I, I will I will raise my glass of beer to Rand. Uh, let's let, let's uh, all take a collective sip for Rand Althor right now. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> All right. Oh, I get it. Now that that's out of the way, you know, I do want to say that this scene is is also important for more than just Rand's relationship with Avienda, because it wasn't until now on this read um, that I realized how unfiltered of a look that we get at like Rand's hopes and dreams in life. Because mm -hmm. there's this moment where he's speaking softly to the borderline comatose Avienda, and mm -hmm. we learn that despite the tone of the prophecies, this extremely fatalistic. Uh, attitude about his future that he still has, he still harbors this tiny hope that he will get to live through by the end. Right. Um, so I, I did like how, like, what this brought out of Rand, what this this entire experience, yeah. and, and what it gave us to look at with who he really is. Um, but and as far as Rand himself goes, I do want to say we're approaching the point in the series where the books are starting to read kind of differently for me, like as an adult. Pardon mm -hmm. me, I, that okay. that that. Uh, drink we just took is coming out i need to burp but um so like book books one through four i've read a hundred times each uh but from here on out i've only read them like 10 times maybe 15 times in the in the like for lord of chaos but there's something about a lot of rand's interactions with the aiel 
that I love at this point in the series. Because I, I didn't quite grasp those social complexities as a teenager. Um, the right. first that comes to mind is Rand in his total broing out with Ruark every time they need to send like a scouting force or a strike force. You know, we get it in Jangai Pass. Rand just kind of turns to Ruark and he says, Duadi Madin. And then Ruark just nods in agreement, you know, water yeah, seekers. Yeah. And then we have Ironrod. Rand, again, goes to Ruark and he just says, Thunderwalkers? And then Ruark, again, agrees. He's like, uh, uh, Shamad Konda, I believe is how it is the old tongue name. Yes. And each, yep. it, it's also kind of aesthetically cool because in each instance, it's, it's flipped. First, we get the old tongue name in the society, followed by the translation. Yeah. And then we get the modern name in the old tongue translation. So aesthetically, yep. that was cool. And then also watching Rand's kind of like his tweaking of the noses when, of the maidens. It's just a, such a huge source of amusement for me. When he declares mm-hmm. the roof of the Winespring Brothers, which only permits entrance right. to those yeah, yeah. who have drunk from the Winespring <laughs> back home. I got such a crack out of that. I do really enjoy I don't think I picked up on that <laughs> until now. I just paused my book and I oh. snorted when I was working on the one uh, ironworking machine. I was like, that was actually pretty clever. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to dial back to the Far Snows real quick. Yeah, go. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to, piss off a lot of people uh-oh oh right god i love conversations uh-oh. let's start this way yes so they are in iron rod yes in like you know basically at the dragon walk oh i think i might know where you're going with this because i might have the same point go ahead dude avienda opens a gateway to shanchan uh-huh when she opens the gateway it is early evening oh, i'm so glad iron you're going rod. here okay it is the middle of the night mm-hmm. in Shanshan. Now, if we we look at our map of the world... <laughs> I'm so glad you're saying this. This should be hours earlier. This should be, like, early morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It in should. Shanshan. Yep. Yeah. And I'm not going to make a judgment or anything right now. I'm just going to say... And Avienda weave time traveling gateways. Oh, fuck off. I didn't think that's where you were going with this. What? No, um. Is that a legitimate this question? Is, this It is a legitimate question, and it's a legitimate thing that Drew and I and, uh, and Jared and whatnot have been discussing for years. And I will tell you right now, I have time a conclusive answer to it. One power. I have a conclusive answer to this question, but I'm not Never going to give it right now. Even consider that. Not yet, but there's a few. And other... we'll 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 readdress well, this question at you the know beginning what? of Path of Daggers. You know what? Balefire also has temporal effects, doesn't it? Yes. Holy well, shit! You might have just well, blown my mind. Could there be ways yeah. for the so, one power moving to on, time? Moving on. Holy shit, you uh, can't just drop a bomb like that and move on. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. What? <laughs> well, you can digest it real quick. Okay. I, I, would, your... I would invite our listeners to comment uh, in, in the Inking Out Loud Facebook group when, when this goes up. Let us know. Have you considered this? Okay. Uh, do you think Avienda could weave time traveling gateways? Let me, let me, let me respond to, to, to not that particular question. I know you're saving that. <laughs> Um, but I, w- I want to address what you were saying about geographic, just logic and how it makes the, how it, it doesn't quite seem to work out. And this is something I noticed about that same scene. This is where I thought you were going. At the end of that scene, they return to Ironrod. Um, mm-hmm. This could be me being stupid, or maybe it was it was it could have been explained by Jordan. Perhaps I'm just interpreting things incorrectly. But when when Rand and Avienda return to Ironrod, Asmodian claims. There's a couple hours until sunrise. But the sun was already risen when they left in Shanchan. And forgive me, but isn't Shanchan west across the ocean? Wouldn't that, that put correct. wouldn't that put Ranlands ahead of Shanchan time? Not behind? Shouldn't it be like noonday when they return to Ironrod? Probably should, yeah. Not if you can weave time travel. Yeah, there you go. Not if you, you can go. weave time travel. <laughs> That's this, see. This is why I thought. That's why I thought you were going with that because you were talking about them going west across the ocean, and suddenly it's a different time of day. And if you look at the map, this is exactly what I thought you were saying. But then you you brought up time travel, and I was like, "What? Hold on, <laughs> hold on, hit the brakes." Oh, there's a lot of discussion to be had there. I think I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing we, what everybody we will else has to say. We discuss this again in the Path of Daggers, and and uh, and again later. There in, in particular, book, huh? which okay. I won't mention now. Yeah, we'll, we'll discuss this, and I will say right now there is a definitive answer. Okay, we'll uh, 
Yeah, we'll we'll touch on that later. Okay, cool. We do need to get moving though. We're yeah. at forty five minutes. Uh, how so about Nineve? Should we discuss Nineve? Go for it. Okay, cool. So I want to say I both love and hate Nineve at this point in the series. It yeah. used to be just hate for the longest time. It was just hate, and now I love and hate Nineve at this mm-hmm. point. First off, she's always in a bad mood, save for like that brief span of depression and guilt after Brigitte was torn from the world of dreams whatever but she's she's acerbic she's rude she's hypocritical I mean there is that famous often quoted by all the fans moment where she says if she had a switch she would thump them all because men always think that every problem can be solved with violence you know yep. I mean, come, come on um but she's also never been more ready to jump headlong into danger, especially if she thinks someone needs saving. There, she has humor. There's that funny moment where Luca asks her about her swollen eye, and her response was something along the lines of, I didn't like the way it looked at me in the mirror, so I bit it! Yeah. <laughs> but what, like, what I find her really endearing is this her, her complete refusal to accept that she's anything resembling brave or courageous. She thinks of herself as this, yeah. this this wretch, this coward. But then we have moments like where she's where Mogedian has her bound and naked and trapped in Teleron Riyadh. And she's thinking, what would Valen Lucas say about her courage now if she if he saw how frightened she was? And she thinks he would probably laugh. I'm just like, Nynaeve, you are literally facing down one of the Forsaken in the world of dreams where it's her element. She has you like, bound and captive, and to save Elaine, you're starting to insult the woman and hope that she kills you. How yeah. how can Nynaeve be so clueless? It, well, about I, herself, I, think this I mean. This is something that it goes back to the way Robert uses uh, Robert Jordan uses point of view. Like, it's so easy to forget how unreliable his narrators. Yeah, are. this is and a this is why showcase. Yeah, you know, this is a this is a selfish you know uh, point that I'm about to make, but this is why so many people like Egwene. Yeah, no, because I they agree. forget that Egwene. Like, everything awesome that happens with Egwene happens from her point of view. And it's very easy for a character to frame something, you know, in a particular way. And what is most impressive to me about Robert Jordan's writing is how, yes, he has unreliable narrators, but they are unreliable in different ways. Yeah. Like, Nynaeve in this sequence is a different kind of unreliable narrator than Egwene is, you know, in The Fires of Heaven or Lord of Chaos or A Crown of Swords. In a different way that Matt is in The Dragon Reborn or Winter's Heart or A Crown of Swords. Like, he, he has created such powerfully unique characters that it just makes sense and it washes over you when they are unreliable in their own heads yeah do you want to yeah i agree like he was so freaking good with point of view um do you want to know why Nynaeve and matt have a lot of tension between them throughout the course of this book do i want to know neither neither of them want to admit how similar they are to each other yes as far as things like their attitude about themselves go. Nynaeve would never admit being roasted over a slow fire that she was anything close to brave. Matt would never admit under the same circumstances being the same But how does that thing. lead to tension between the two when they never discuss that? Exactly. That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah, because like, they don't want to admit anything. And this yeah. is how we get scenes like we do in A Crown of Swords, right? They, they know they're similar. Okay. On some deep level. Yeah, but if they yeah. admit that about the other one, they that means admit they admit it. it about themselves. Yeah. And yeah. they're not okay. going to do that. Okay. Yeah. I think so I that, see what you're saying. That's that's part of it, it's at any so rate. Brilliant. I, I firmly believe oh, that's part That's the kind of, of tension that can only be mutual. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I got yeah. you. I see what you're saying. I see what you're and saying. And like, because Matt's relationship with Nynaeve is different than it is with any of the other female characters in the series. Yeah, oh, you know, I do say I, I'm looking so, so forward to some certain scenes in Lord of Chaos regarding that exact thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I also good. think it's very uh, like uh, very important to note how differently Matt's interactions with Egwene are from his interactions with Nynaeve. Oh yeah. No, yeah. because no matter what else Nynaeve is, she's blunt and honest. Yeah. And no matter what else Egwene is, she is the opposite of those two things. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I think we need to like start wrapping it up here. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Rob, do you have any like questions about this oh, yeah. segment? Uh, not so much questions, just like what if scenarios. I already brought one up earlier, and that was a showdown between Mogadian and Lanfear and Teleron Riyadh. But there is another moment where I want to see it, get your impression on like how this would have turned out, a showdown between certain characters. There's a moment in uh, with Nynaeve's point of view when she is in, I think she's in Gildon, and she enters an alleyway with Uno and Rhaegon, yes. and Galad interrupts them. And there's a very clear tension in the air between, of course, the men with their steel penises, I believe as Stover would <laughs> describe it. And how do you think that showdown would have gone if it led to bloodshed? If, if Galad had actually decided Nynaeve's in danger, how do you think that would have worked out? Alleyway scene, Galad Damodred versus, I should say Galad Galadedrid Damodred, I believe is his full name, versus Uno and Rhaegon. How do you see that going? Okay, well, Galad would have killed Uno and Rhaegon. Yeah, not good for them, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't think it would have been as easy as he thought. But I also want to point out how freaking hilarious that scene was. This is another point where, like, uh, Robert Jordan uses point of view and, like, unreliable narrator, uh, situational humor. Um, I gotta the find the way. quote. I gotta find the quote. But yeah, while you do that, I, I, I agree that Uno and Rhaegon would have bought the farm, um, but they would have done <laughs> some damage while they didn't. You see, I was back and forth trying to decide this, because I know Galad is, is, is a blade master in all but official title yeah. at this point. But Uno and Rhaegon are old, gnarled, campaigning soldiers who have been in yeah. the blight for a vast majority of their lifetime. Like, they... They, I'm pretty sure each one of them could probably, uh, definitely Uno could probably face down a Murdral. So, the probably. fact that the yeah. fact that I think uh, I keep going back and forth on it. Of course, Nynaeve as the unreliable narrator might be lending a lot to that, but because she assumes that that you know Uno and Rhaegon would just leave him as sausage, but at the same time, you know, I don't know. Like I think, I think the alleyway scenario definitely means Galad would would take the cake like easy. Not easy, yeah, but it, if, definitely. If, uh, Uno and Rhaegon. If would have Uno had and Rhaegon could come at him from opposite sides, and you know, yeah. depending on the environment, I think they would stand a good chance because of their experience. But the fact that they were in, an, in tight confines in an alleyway, and they would have had to come from him, come to him, at him from one side. Yeah, Galad has it without much difficulty. However, there's another thing, another aspect to that situation, and that's that in an alley, a swordsman is at a distinct disadvantage. They're all swordsmen because you don't. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Everyone's at a disadvantage. Oh, I thought you meant in respect to one another. Like, one has an advantage over the other, or disadvantage towards the other. Got you, okay. Uh, the more experienced might have the edge Yeah. under those circumstances where both of them are facing the same penalty. But mm. you don't have a lot of room to maneuver and, you know, to do um, cutting maneuvers. Yeah. Which their swords are more designed to do than stabbing. Yeah, the Shinar uh, swords you know, are held over their yeah. shoulders, eh? Whereas Galad has his at his waist, I think, on his hip. I don't, yeah, I don't think any of them have your standard longsword. Yeah. I think they all have the uh, katana-esque. Slightly you know, curved, single-edged you know, blade, folded steel. Yeah. Yeah. Plus Quillen's, uh, which are very good slashing <sighs> Oh yeah, that's yeah. what they're oh, for. Yeah. But uh, I digress. Yeah. Anyway, I, I can't find the line. I don't have time to read the whole, like, 13-page okay. section right gotcha. now. But yeah, that's fair. Go um, back and reread that whole segment. It is hilarious getting it all from in Nynaeve's mind. Like, it is one of the standout funniest moments in the whole series for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I So I'm just going to throw a few impressions, like, reactions about what we've read so far. Uh, this is something I've been uh -huh. doing at the end of most episodes. I think I'll continue to do this going forward. I do want to give a shout-out to Pod and Fane's uh, awesome description of Shea Ghoul. Holy crap, when he's talking to Alviar, and I have the quote written down here. He says, I have seen Thakandar. And so, uh, the great sea of fog rolling and crashing against the black cliffs. The fires of the forges glowing red beneath and lightning stabbing up into a sky fit to drive men mad. He did not want to go on, but he made himself. I have taken the path down to the belly of Sheol Ghoul, down the long way with stones like fangs brushing my head, to a shore of a lake of fire in molten rock that holds the great lord of the dark in its endless depths. The heavens above Sheol Ghoul, Ghoul? Sheol Ghoul are black at noon with his breath. 
Holy Very metal. Shit. Very metal. Yeah. Wow. I, I just I, I am in awe every time I come to that segment in this series. Like we haven't really had a great description of Sheol Ghoul until this point, have we? Like not quite on no, that level. This is legitimately the first time we have had the description of the pit of doom specifically yeah this oh man it's hard to remember details like that having read this a jillion times yeah right yeah but no this is the first time we get the description and then the first time we see it like in the moment is in the prologue of lord of chaos with the mandrath yeah so yeah so Uh, there's that uh sorry were you about to continue there or should i so i wanted to just bring up one quick thing okay yeah and that is uh we haven't touched on swan and liana and logan oh we uh, have they arrived in saladar they did arrive in saladar yeah um i i don't have a ton to say about this other than i love that sequence yeah like swan and liana kind of being put in their place but also kind of like shocking the crap out of the Aes Sedai at the same time mm-hmm. and then Logan's just like what what is going on like yeah. <laughs> and how Swan and Liana decide to play their situation is beautiful yeah beautiful yeah 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 where they they <clears throat> they let the Aes Sedai make their assumptions that the three oaths are still intact mm-hmm which is a big deal, you know, like, I don't know, I, I thought that was another brilliantly written section in this, especially because it had been built up so much over the last, like, book, uh, from the breaking of the tower and the Shadow Rising until now, uh, where we realize, holy crap, there's a schism into, there's a full-on rebellion, and, like, a good half of the Aes Sedai in the tower yeah. fled, and then we find out, oh, there's a there's a full on like location and structure to the rebellion, and then we get to see it from the point of view of Swan Sanchez. Mm-hmm. You know, so we get her judgments, the woman who used to run the one tower. We get to see what she thinks about this rebellion. It's just another reason like I'll harp on point of view yeah. every single fucking episode. Like, I, I'm sorry. It, Robert Jordan was so good with that. About that specific point, though, about Swan and how she, like, like her her entire motive. There was this moment in Chapter 27 that I forgot to mention. Um, but I, I thought it was really important to note that she thinks about Ooh. the how important it is to reach Rand before the tower does. Because, and I quote, because if Elida put her hands on him, displayed him shielded and under her control, any hope of toppling her would be gone. I'm right. just like, yeah. really? Is that your biggest concern? If Elida actually captures him and manages to like to practically enslave the Dragon Reborn, your biggest concern is that you're not going to be able to topple Elida. Well, but it makes sense for for Swan. Swan was just tortured and abused and stilled at the hands of Elida. Of course, she's going to have that. She may again. She's a blue though. View trap with Moraine. Point of like... view trap. <laughs> she may tell herself, "My goal." Yeah is still the dragon reborn at the last battle, but she has undergone trauma at this point at the hands <laughs> yeah, of Elida. Funny, of yeah. course that is going to tint her goals and her view on the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Okay. So, um, I'll continue. But that's then. all. That's all I wanted to say about Saladar. Yeah. Uh, as far as the rest of my uh, impressions go, uh, I want to say, holy crap, Soralia is old. I hadn't realized. I hadn't actually stopped and thought about what she was saying in some circumstances. But wow, she is an old bitch. Sorry, she's not a bitch. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but first off, she refers to young Bear. Wow. Um, yeah, bear yeah. is like 80 or 90 years old as far as I know, right? Mm-hmm, but there's yeah. another moment where she's talking to Avienda and Elaine. I think she's talking specifically to Avienda about this, this Aiel man named Farron. Um, and she's referring to him. She says, his great father is my sister's son. And I, I always just kind of pushed yeah. that aside. But I stopped and thought about what that meant. If I'm reading that correctly, his grandfather is my nephew. His great-grandfather is her nephew. Wow. Oh, my God. So his great-grandfather is her nephew. And this is a this is not a baby she's talking about. This is a full-grown no. oh, no. man. <laughs> That's that's incredible yeah, yeah, to me. Yeah. Sora Leah, so, awesome, so, so badass. I'll say so. We we do need to like get wrapping up here. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, 
I just um, okay. So last last one then. Brigitta, my favorite quote in the entire series, perhaps I think my favorite whoa. quote in the entire series. I don't want to say it. Definitely is definitely top three. It might be is my it favorite. The hangman. It's the hangman. If you must mount the gallows, give a jest to the crowd, a coin to the hangman, and make the drop with a smile on your face. It's a very easy thing for someone who knows they're going to be reborn to say. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I suppose that might be colored by her worldview there, but, you know, I but thought yeah, it was whatever. It's just so yeah. awesome. It's so awesome. Give me a thousand years and I'll be back at this. <laughs> yeah. Well, so on, on that note, mm-hmm. let's move into the final draft. Let's. Indeed. Oh my what God. do you got going, I, Rob? I almost spilled this all over my keyboard and I picked up the wrong one. So I'm trying to pick up the empty bottle. I picked up the one that was half full. Whoops. So I was in the store about two hours ago, maybe three hours ago now, the grocery store, looking for a, a suitable beer for this podcast episode for The Fires of Heaven Part 2. And I am uh, ashamed to say that I actually didn't find one that has anything to do thematically as far as it's named because I saw this one lying there. And it had, this is an IPA, but it had such a stupid name, such a ridiculous <laughs> name, that I thought, well, I have to at least bring that one on the podcast. Um, this here is an IPA from Great Lakes Brewery, and it's called Octopus Wants to Fight. <laughs> I nice. don't, uh, there's a big old octopus with boxing gloves on, yeah, on each awesome. of its tentacles there. It looks like it wants to kick my ass. But you have to check out the description that I, that I actually read here while I was actually standing in line to pay for it. Check this out. It says, our pet octopus is a bit of a jerk. He's that guy who has a couple and then t- either tells you how much he loves you or threatens to fight you. So we brewed this IPA <laughs> with eight varieties of hops and eight types of malt. We targeted 88 IBU which I have no godly idea what that means, and 8.8% to appease him. Sadly, when he found out that we fabricated all of the above info, it only made him more volatile. We are starting <laughs> to think that Octopus was a poor choice for a pet. What <laughs> the f- Gee, what, what? That's great. What? This is why you shouldn't get And it just has ingredients listed here. Beer. Water, malted barley, flaked oats, hops, and yeast. <laughs> but, you know, it's 6.2 ABV. It was, I was expecting to bring it on and tell you guys all that and just say, and you know what? It was overcompensating because the IPA was absolute shit. But you know what? Mm. It went down nice. It was actually really good. I'm glad nice. to hear it. It yeah. was really good. So, yeah, that's what I've been drinking. Octopus wants to fight. Capital. Capital. Drew, what are you drinking? Yeah. So, uh, Pat abstained since we started recording this at 10 a.m. on yeah, it's, Sunday. It's a lot earlier than we normally do. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, uh, and and uh, so yeah, Pat made the wise choice and abstained. Uh, oh. I I made the sacrifice to crack this <laughs> bad boy open at ten a.m. on well, a Sunday. Someone's got to bear the cross, so to speak. Well, I mean, it's great, <laughs> but also I'm just going to point out this is a twelve point four percent. Oh my gosh, bourbon barrel aged oatmeal double stout mine. with maple syrup. Ooh, Ooh. my Canadian just went. <gasps> Yeah, uh, the, this beer is incredible. In the force. It, it is super good. I have previously had the coconut variant of this, which I think is even better. Uh, but both are excellent. Uh, this is this is awesome. But I'm making this sacrifice at such an early hour. <laughs> the sacrifice. Take one for the team, bud. Because our first Fires of Heaven episode, the beer I brought in was called Wolf's Wedding. Mm-hmm. And I dedicated that to Perrin's Honeymoon. Yeah. Whether or not he lost his virginity on his honeymoon, I don't know. I can't say. But but that's a dedication to him there, right? Pretty sure he didn't. This, this beer right here, is a dedication to Rand oh, losing no. his virginity. Oh, no. It is called Snowed In. Oh. Uh, my goodness. The only way that could have been better would, if it, would it be if it was called Snowed Inside. Or something like that. God damn, that was a that was a good one. I like that. Yeah, well, now, now the problem is I've done Perrin's virginity and Rand's virginity, and we have Matt's virginity still to celebrate at the end of this. So now I have to find some beer that deals with Melindra. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, but somehow. Oh, sh- I just realized what I'm gonna bring in. <laughs> oh, oh, sh- hold on. I might have oh. just got a screen cap of Drew's face when he realized that. We'll see. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. No, we're good. We're well, good. 
as we enjoy our beers and Rand is busy giving Avienda his iron rod. Nice. Oh! Will... oh my god. Oh man. Pat, wow. Promise me that you're going to put a kick and rim shot in the final when you actually say that. And on that note, this has been a episode, episode what is this? 38. 38? Yep. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, episode 38 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we will be finishing off the Fires of Heaven uh, with the same old group. And I'll, I'll give you all a little heads up. We'll be taking another break from the Wheel of Time after that. But we will not be taking a break from Robert Jordan. We will be covering Warrior of the Altai, the new, old Robert Jordan novel that is getting published in uh, just about a week or so here. Yeah, we will. So, uh, if you want to check that out, pick it up on release day. Uh, we're not sure whether we're going to do one or two episodes covering it. Uh, we're thinking about doing two, but we'll see how much we cover on our first one. So, yeah, I, I would say definitely pick that up and check it out if you can. Um, as always, you know, uh, we are able to do this because of our support from our Patreons. Uh, you know, all, all the proceeds for that go to Pat here for his very hard work on uh, sound engineering and Danielle for her amazing artwork. And, uh, you know, th that helps us pay for the hosting and just running the podcast in general. So if you're not a Patreon, please check it out. Uh, Patreon.com, Inking Out Loud. Uh, you know, we got we got a bunch of benefits. You can get access to early episodes. You can get access to our uh, monthly short episodes and our monthly newsletter and things like that. So, you know, we, and we very much appreciate it for everybody who has been supporting us so far. Indeed, we do. Mm -hmm. uh, as always, though, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Hey, all! And our very special guest, Patrick McCaffrey. Peace. Thanks again, Pat. And it's we'll up. catch you next time. Bye, everybody. Cool.